welcome or welcome back to the Sonia Looney Show. Thank you so much for listening. And I think that you'll really enjoy today's episode. Today's episode is with a dear friend of mine named Shane Cooper. And you know all those awesome socks that I wear? He's the man behind them. He is the owner and creator of Defeat, this international sock company that makes socks made in the United States of America. And you'll hear more about that in the show. I met Shane in a parking lot in a small town in North Carolina at five o'clock in the morning randomly. And he believed in me from the start saying, I really think that you should try and take your personal brand to the next level and that you should go on your own. You should quit your team. And Defeat has been a big supporter of me, not only financially as a sponsor, but also in terms of opportunity. The Do Epic Shit socks you've seen are my design and Defeat and I partnered on that. It was the very first sock I ever designed. And the Effing Magical Unicorn sock, I think I like profanities on my socks, but if you are interested in those, check the show notes as well. But Defeat is an awesome company. They were started in 1991 and They've had their ups and they've had their downs, including being burnt to the ground in 2001. That almost sounded like a Dr. Seuss poem. But I just want to bring you guys this great story. Shane is an entrepreneur. He's a musician. He's a cyclist. He's a really inspiring person. And he has a lot of great advice and nuggets. And it's also really interesting to hear how socks are made because I certainly didn't know until I went to visit Defeat. So here is Shane Cooper from Defeat. How's it going, Shane? Pretty good. Yeah, you're over there in North Carolina enjoying the fall leaves. Yeah, well, our leaves got blown off the other day. We had a F1 hurricane, tornado come through here. Yeah, I saw something about that on your guys' Instagram. Yeah, we had a funny thing. You know, you learn in those situations. We had a tornado watch from four in the afternoon till nine at night. And then, you know, you kind of forget about it. And I was in a meeting and uh, four o'clock in the afternoon and it was dark outside. So I went outside and all of a sudden the sky's black and the wind picks up and no kidding, a 125 mile an hour wind went straight down the street in front of defeat. You've been here before. Wow. And then it jumped over to the airport as an F2 and it took my entire bike path all the way to my house. Are you serious? And, yeah, we had two trees on my home, and but it went all the way down the bike path ruin. <laughs> so uh, luckily, nobody was hurt. And, uh, you know, at Defeat, we learned a few things. You know, you got to be prepared. And we all ran to the bathroom and collected our thoughts and uh, made sure that we were in a safe place. But anyway, yeah, we just... So the fall leaves are gone. That's crazy. Yeah. And that's not the first natural... I guess it wasn't really a natural disaster that hit Defeat last time, but... We'll talk about the fire later in the show, but you guys have definitely weathered a lot of storms. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, an arduous art, you know, journey, of course, but uh, with those incredible obstacles that were in the way, we've had a lot of great opportunities. So we're, we're very fortunate. Yeah, so many people are really familiar with all the great designs of Defeat and the fact that they are the best quality sock out there. But I don't think a lot of people know the background of Defeat and how you started it and that the socks are made in America. So I want to start at the beginning of Defeat and how you decided I'm going to start this company. Wow. You know, it kind of started by mistake, Sonia. My wife and I were bike racers traveling the East Coast and she was a cardiac rehab director with a you know six-year college degree, and I was a six-year community college student without a degree. But uh, she was winning money 
on the weekends in the summer. And she could win like $5,000 a summer wow. to supplement her income. And I was spending $5,000 a year racing my bike. So my family history really helped me kick this little business to start. So although we were racing bikes and I was managing the team and I needed to find a way to supplement the money that I was spending, my background was electronics engineering in the community college. I was in a rock band and I understood how to market bands per se. My father sold knitting machines. So my father sold sock machine parts and sock machines. And we emigrated to the U.S. from England when I was a kid. So I grew up in a knitting machine. So I understood socks. And uh, I saw the sock as another opportunity to put a sponsorship logo on. And I sold them to my bike shop for $300 for the first order. And uh, we were sponsored by Cannondale at the time. So I approached Cannondale. And the next thing I know, we had a company. So it kind of started by mistake, but I think that we really, when we started the Defeat Aerator Sock Line, of course it was made that you could put your logo on, but it was also one hell of a sock. And we kind of re-engineered or we reversed the way socks were being made at the time because of the, the yarns that were available were space age technology at the time were, were cool max which was a wicking material so adding all those things together sonia that allowed us to create a great product at the right time we understood the market and i understood sock machines and so everything kind of came together yeah that's such a great and creative way to decide okay i need to make more money so what am i going to do oh i'll just start making socks like i don't think a lot of people would actually be brave enough to decide to make that choice. So I don't actually think it was a mistake. I think that it was a really awesome idea that you had and that it's completely blown up for you. It's really cool. Yeah, it uh, is 25th year this year. And without my wife being the black and white of the company, by that I mean she's the CFO. She, you know, Hope is, is incredible with numbers, which really helped me. You know, I was on $30 a week allowance at the time when I started Defeat. So <laughs> You know, we were really careful with the money. We paid for the company as we went along, and it turned into a business over time. Initially, it was just an idea. You know, it was, it was a, a lifestyle. And 25 years later, yeah, it's a full-blown business. We're in 37 countries. We've won countless awards for export by the U.S. Uh, government, and um, it just it's been a, a, a lot of fun. Yeah. So whenever you started selling them to bike shops, how did you scale your business so that you could start doing a lot more? Because that's a big challenge for people starting a new business is they, they get a product up and running, but now they have to scale it and manage it. Yeah. Scaling the business. Uh, my, that's, uh, my wife stayed working at the hospital as cardiac rehab director. So she ran the books part-time. And then I ran the knitting machine, the one that we had, and I fixed the knitting machine and I did the artwork on the socks, and I sold the socks. So we didn't hire anybody. So the scalability came from me doing all the work. I'm a dyslexic, and I have you know the attention deficit stuff going on. But what that does is it helps if you start a business because it allows you to understand that you have to hire smarter people than yourself. And you, being a dyslexic, you learn at a very young age to trust people. Because you don't know what a sign says. You say, hey, what's that say? I can't read this. And I learned to delegate. So scalability of our company was me on the road doing all the work. But as I was able to afford to hire people, 
I was able to not just hire them, but give them that role pretty much completely, which allowed me to continue to focus on the strengths and to grow the business over the course of time. Yeah. And that's something that you hear a lot in terms of entrepreneurship is focus on the things that you're good at and delegate and hire out things that you're not good at. But a lot of times it's really hard for people to give up that control because they feel like they need to do everything themselves. But I've read um, a lot of Malcolm Gladwell books, and I remember specifically, I don't remember which book it was, but he spoke about dyslexics specifically, saying how dyslexics are extra creative because they have to be, because of the way that they have to see the world. Yeah. When I was in high school, which I graduated in 1981, I'd never heard the word dyslexic. And they just called us dumbasses, you know, and, and that was just the way it was. And dumbasses that have a little bit of intellectual power become smart asses. And so that's basically what I was. I was just a dumbass. But what happened is absolutely, you can't control it. It's not something I sat down and planned. And I think there's a very high percentage of entrepreneurs that are dyslexic. Absolutely. I think one just wrote a book about 10 years ago, just wrote a book called Captain Underpants. I believe he was a, a dyslexic as well. So... Yeah, that's awesome. So were you always in North Carolina then? No. Well, my family immigrated from uh, Nottingham, UK, when I was four, and we lived in Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, until I was about eight. And then, uh, so I grew up in the South. And so, yes, from eight years old on, I grew up in this region. And this region, the reason my father moved to North Carolina was the hosiery capital of this region. So, yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that Hildebrand area is the hosiery capital. And I certainly didn't know that until I came to visit because I thought, well, why are they there? Like, Defeat could be anywhere. Why did they choose to be there? Well, that's true. We could be anywhere. And you mentioned the fire in uh, 2001, October the 21st, we burned to the ground and we had the opportunity to go anywhere we wanted. And we chose to stay here. And one of the reasons we chose to stay here is because we buy our yarn from a about an 80-mile radius. Imagine having your, your raw materials within an 80-mile radius. And so just-in-time inventories mean a lot to us and help us scale, a good word that you used earlier, helped us to scale our business. Yeah, and I think that's really cool because a lot of people talk about with food, they talk about eating local and supporting your local economy. And that's probably something else that people don't realize about Defeat is just how local it is. And you guys you own your own building, you own your own business, you own all the machines that make all the socks. And how many machines do you have now? Oh, I don't know if I told you I'd have to kill you probably, but um, <laughs> you haven't seen the basement. We have a room full and I don't know what the number is now, but it, it's a lot. And uh, we employ about 45 people. That's growing every year. And we are buying new machinery every year as well. So we're trying to grow this thing into all it can be, for sure. Yeah, so you mentioned that Defeat burned to the ground. So can you tell us how that happened and like what you did to evolve from there? Wow. You know, the fire started from a light ballast. So that's a fluorescent light, you know, the big four-foot by one-foot fluorescent lights. They have a block in that powers the gases, I guess. And that block burst. And it has hot tar in it. And when the tar came out, it went onto the boxes and burned us to the ground. That happened at night. And luckily, nobody was hurt. But our building was completely destroyed. And the firemen used water to put out fires. 
and our machines are metal that got all these little tiny parts in them with water all over them and, and their electronics. So the machines were devastated. And so we had business interruption insurance and we couldn't make any socks for nine months. Wow. We were 50 employees the day of the fire and we had to shrink to 25 employees. And I had just read the story or saw the story on 60 Minutes about Malden Mills up in, uh, they make uh, Polar Tech, and they had burned down. And their owner, I forgot his name, Firestein somebody. But anyway, he employs employees to rebuild his company. And I thought that was a very noble thing to do. So we did the same thing. We never missed a pay period with our employees. And we rebuilt that company back to manufacturing capacities in nine months. But meanwhile, we lost shelf space to competitors. Keep in mind, that was 2001 end of 2001. Then uh, my business partner and I, Paul Willerton, went on road trips and we would go for 30 days at a time and we would go see the bike shops that supported us and tell them about the story, warn them about the fluorescent lights that can catch fire. And we just basically asked if they would wait for us. And a lot of them did. We rebuilt the company in nine months and it took us seven full years to get back to profitability which was 2008. So 2008, our worst economic time in world history, defeat comes back strong. And we were stoked to do that. That's such a cool story. But I mean, there had to be moments over the course of that time period where you thought, oh my gosh, this isn't going to work. Like, what did you do whenever you had those feelings? Yeah. You know, Sonia, I didn't know it, but depression sunk in. And you don't know it at the time. You don't realize it. You know, you don't realize how all the pressures are affecting you because I had to become, you know, pretty astute with our case because it turned into a lawsuit with our insurance agency. Our insurance agency only wanted to pay us 3% growth over the prior year for our business interruption. But we had been growing for 11 years at 50% a year. Wow. And they offered 3%. And their, their excuse was that all the manufacturing jobs had moved to China and we wouldn't have been successful anyway. <laughs> so it took three years of arguing and we finally settled for 33% over the prior year and, and we were good to go. But that's what I was focusing on and it was so depressing. And I had hired some bad management at that time that was really tainting the company against uh, the ownership, my wife and I. And so I would ride my bike and I would run and that was good. But when I'd come to the office, when we were in a building for nine months before we got to move back into our other building, yeah, it was terribly depressing. And I guess the depression sunk in and by 2008, I was pretty much a basket case, but we made it through. And that's about, when did I meet you? What year was that? Uh, I think it was more like 2010, 2011. Okay. Yeah. So I was uh, beyond uh, all that mess by then. Yeah, that's amazing, though, because you were still persistent, like despite feeling depressed, despite all the setbacks, despite all the things telling you to stop, you guys just kept moving forward. And I think that a lot of people give up in those situations or they would have seen their business that they built for 11 years burn straight to the ground and they would have just said, OK, well, this isn't meant to be. I'm going to do something else now. So I think that that's a really cool story. And it's really inspiring for people to see that, yes, all these horrific things can happen, but you can still come out on top as long as you keep pushing forward and working hard. 
Well, you know, even the best athletes in the world have setbacks, you know, the gold medalists, you know, there's all these stories about adversity. And I think adversity gives you opportunity. And, you know, at defeat in 2001, when we burned down, if you look back at the history of manufacturing, you'll see that's about the time that NAFTA was in full effect around here. NAFTA is a trade agreement with the North American Free Trade Agreement with Mexico and Canada. And what happened was once we signed that, we signed it for manufacturing to be able to make products cheaper in Mexico to compete with China. And what China did as soon as we signed that is they lowered their yen or their Chinese currency. They lowered it so like by 75%. So it was no longer even. And so we couldn't manufacture in Mexico and compete with China anymore. But all the jobs had left here. And we stayed put even with the fire because I guess of my wife and I, we had this resolve, you know, to try and get to the finish line again, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because there's so many companies that export all of their work. Like, I can't tell you how many things I've received that are made in China, made in Taiwan. So I know that there's probably been that question for you, like, should we move our business? So why don't you move the business? Why? Like, it's probably cheaper to manufacture elsewhere. So why do you decide to stay put? Totally cheaper and cheaper in many ways. And with Defeat, we believe in long-lasting goodness and quality. And we believe that's where our customer base can appreciate our brand. I have been to China. I didn't go because I wanted to make product there. I went to China as a consultant for a, a large shoe company, and um, they wanted my opinion of some sock manufacturing. And when I got there, the people were absolutely incredible. The Chinese people were so friendly and nice and warm to me. But what I saw was what the government had done to the land. The land, I could not see. I went to Shanghai, and I could not see 100 meters without the fog or not smog. The smog just cutting out all everything behind it. It's like a blanket. And they never have the sunshine. So everywhere I went, a 100-mile radius out of Shanghai was sprawling like that, and it was terrible. And the Chinese people, you know, they're into the environment. They used to be, but the government walked away from it. So for me, it's an environmental thing. And not only that, it's uh, if you go into a sock factory or a, a backpack factory in China, you're going to see all the other brands right next to each other being made. It becomes homogenization of product development. So there's no secrets. And so defeat, we like to have some secrets and we like to bang our chest on innovation. And so controlling the product development and innovation of new products for defeat secures our future for the next 10 years. So, and then I guess being an American citizen, you know, later in my life, I became an American citizen in 1976. I'm damn proud of our country and what it stands for, the freedoms, not the Donald Trump proud, you know, that <laughs> that's bully tactic. But more about the liberty and justice and freedom that we have, because a lot of countries don't have that. So we were proud to continue pushing forward in that arena as well. So I guess it's red, white, blue and green, the reasons that we stayed. Yeah, and I think it's really important to say that you that we are proud to be Americans, even though I live in Canada, I'm still proud to be an American because it's really hard right now. And I think a lot of Americans aren't even really sure what it means to be an American anymore. So it's really nice to hear somebody say something positive about the U.S. Yeah, I hear you. And, you know, I think the U.S. is bigger than any any party. I think U.S. is bigger than than any side when it comes down to it. And I hope that she can get back to where she needs to be one day very soon. Yeah. 
Yeah. So let's talk about the technology. Um, you mentioned innovation and technology. And I was thinking back to when I met you, it was actually in 2013. And I want to talk about okay. that story too. But you were using Coolmax Ecomade at the, at the time and you were showing me all the products. And it's like you said, oh, these are made out of plastic water bottles. And now more recently, you guys are using Reprieve. And so a lot of people don't think about how complicated it is, how many options you have whenever you're building a sock and the types of yarn that can go in there. So what influences those decisions and what makes you innovate choosing to move from one yarn to another? Well, we started with DuPont Coolmax because Coolmax and DuPont were sponsoring the Tour DuPont. And mm -hmm. Coolmax was basically a tetra-channeled, four-channeled, cloverleaf cross-section polyester that moves moisture from the body and dries fast. Well, DuPont also owned Kevlar, Enron, Lycra, Thermostat. So they owned about everything that we would use in cycling. So they sponsored after actually Donald Trump started the Tour DuPont or Tour de Trump, DuPont came in and bought it and they ran the, the tour, which was a bike race in America in the early 80s and mid 90s. So anyway, that's why we chose the Coolmax. It was space age technology. Before that, there was just cotton and polyester. There was no moisture transfer. And you know, if you think back to like Under Armour, when they started, they Kevin Plant, he taught football players that cotton shirts shouldn't be worn under shoulder pads, that this new material should be. So, you know, that was in like 1996, and we started in 92. So we stayed with the Coolmax, and we kept challenging them. And every year we would challenge them. They would meet the goal. One year I told them to change their blue sign to green. I said, make this stuff recycled. We weren't the only ones saying it, but they did it. And so we stayed with them. And at some point, Reprieve, which is owned by Unified, started. And uh, Unified is a North Carolina company. And we're working with Patagonia and you know Quicksilver, some really, really solid brands. But they hadn't mastered the science behind moisture wicking at that point. So we monitored them and we wanted to switch, but we couldn't switch until they had performance built into the program. So I think two years ago, they came to me with this new performance product. And so we jumped on it, but I said, whoa, 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 where's this stuff being recycled? And again, they said, well, you know, sometimes in Japan and sometimes here, sometimes there. I said, let's recycle it in America. And again, Defeat wasn't the only one saying that, but they did one better. They started recycling in North Carolina. Just last year, they created 90 new jobs to chop the bottle up locally here in the Raleigh area. And so we've got kind of a really nice setup now. So all of our yarns, North Carolina, coming from recycled water bottles, and it's the, it wicks moisture, so it dries quick. And that's the first time we'd switched from the DuPont days of Coolmax was about three years ago. It takes a long time because we have so many yarns available in our at our disposal and then of course your other part of your question what stops us from switching to a yarn would be uh ludicrous claims that can't be substantiated and that happens all the time and we like to work with uh, the canadian company mountain equipment co-op they kind of keep us on our toes to make sure what we say is truth because you know somebody might tell you listen there's yarns out there with ceramic particles, there's yarns with silver particles, there are all kinds of yarns that are out there that are synthetically made that can do some really cool things, but maybe they damage the environment. You know, maybe we don't know all about it. Maybe, so we have to be really careful with that. 
So once we really study the yarn technology, Sonia, and we study it, uh, I've got a group of doctors that I ride with. We make sure that all the studies that we read are proofed, and we make sure that uh, nobody's selling us something that's not true. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot, a huge amount of integrity behind the brand Defeat and behind the company and behind you. I mean, it, it would be really tempting, I think, to just buy the cheapest thing. That way you can make more money and drive your bottom line. But it speaks very highly of you guys that integrity is first over everything. And I think that is important whenever you have a business and when you're moving forward, because you might lose your sense of self and your, might sen- your sense of why you're doing this if you lose that integrity. I'm glad you noticed that. And I've never really thought about the integrity of defeat for doing that. We do it because we want the product to last a long time and for the customer to have a great experience. To me, that's more important than selling them a sock for cheap that's going to rip out after the first couple of rides, which, you know, a lot of the socks do. But <laughs> we and, and most of our socks last, you know, 10 years or so. I mean, you can really get a long, long lifetime out of them. Yeah, I have to say, I've been fortunate to be working with you guys for a while that I have socks that I've had for many, many years. And I look in my sock drawer, which is now a box. It's it's actually a funny topic. There's this book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and it tells you how to fold all your stuff. And this sounds really kind of lame, but I spent time figuring out how to fold my socks so that I don't I can see them and that they're like nicely organized. So they're in this like big shallow box in my closet so I can see every single sock. And whenever I look in that sock box, it's amazing because I can see socks I've had for years. And whenever I moved to Canada, I had left all this stuff in Colorado and some of my socks I donated to one of my best friends because I said, well, I just can't bring everything with me. And I had had to defeat socks from when I first started riding in like 2003, 2004. And the other day she sent me a picture of, it was like the sperm sock. I don't know if you remember that one. I remember <laughs> And she had the sperm sock from like however long ago that was from, and it was still going strong. So the <laughs> insert all the all the jokes about that. But <laughs> come on, there's no jokes on that. <laughs> yeah, that sock was actually a gift that we developed for my business partner Paul Willerton when he decided that he was going to have babies, and so we gave him good luck with the sperm sock. That's hilarious. <laughs> that thing was so popular. The comedian Robin Williams came to our booth Interbike one year, and he absolutely loved that sock. He picked it up, and he just started going off about going down the Jism Trail and all these crazy things. <laughs> that he said. And, you know, Robin Williams is so quick-minded. We miss Robin. He was an incredible guy. But anyway, I digress. That's so cool. I love that. <laughs> and so now you guys have, in the last few years, you created a team, an adventure team called the Barnstormers. So I want to talk about that and like where that came from and your love of gravel riding. Well, I started racing road bikes in 1986 and uh, met my wife, as I mentioned, probably in 1988. We raced USCF, you know, not at the pro level, but the amateur level and did well and had fun. And then uh, I broke my back in a road crash, and we switched over to mountain biking for a couple of years and did the Norba circuit. And then we had kids. So we, we loved the training aspect of road riding, and we loved the beautiful parts of mountain biking. And recently, you know, this new gravel thing has started popping up, and it's perfect for people like Hope and I that like to train. We like the adventure. Maybe we don't want to go off cliffs on our mountain bikes anymore, but so we found a perfect home for us, which is gravel. 
and we're doing two gravel rides a week and two road a road ride and a mountain bike. So we do four rides a week, and we've taken you on some of our rides. Spirited, fun. You know, we're we're older. We're in our fifties, but we still like to ride hard. And uh, what happened was we started getting left behind in the design department. So all these incredible brands started popping up with incredible stories. And one of them would be Ten Speed Hero, the athletic Jeremy Dunn. Sean Seiko, Handlebar Mustache, Ridge Supply. They started popping up and we were making all their socks. We were like the frame maker that were making all their their frames for them and they put their beautiful designs on them. But we felt like we had design elements too, but we had to find ourselves. So we wanted to ground it and create a history behind our squad that we wanted to create that was going to go to these places less traveled. And we came up with the Barnstormers. And the Barnstormers' backstory is my character was a World War I fighter pilot that came to the U.S. I guess in the, after World War II, he came to the U.S. And so he became a Barnstormer, flying a, a plane and, and thrilling, showing everybody his, his moves, aerial maneuvers. And from that, we developed a sock line that was inspired from that generation. And that was our first – we called that the uh, – we did a movie called The Bottled – what was that one called? That was called the Graveled High Ruler. So the Graveled High Ruler collection was this inspired from that generation. And so then decided that we have such incredible gravel that we should make this gravel team, the Barnstormers, expand and invite people to come and ride with us. Not just that, but show us your gravel. Show us where you like to ride. Show us your road less traveled. And let's make this a worldwide group of people that share the same feeling and go and take a picture of that barn that you just passed or that waterfall and let's share it because that's why we really get out there and do these things. So we capped the Barnstormers at 200 and we're going to open this back up and offer even more opportunity for adventure riders, if you will. It's a free club to join. Some of the celebrity members, we have Greg LeMond, Yoan Museo and Dave Zabriskie and Sonia Looney on our uh, Adventure Club docket there. And uh, so that's kind of what we did. And it's really inspired us to get even more creative. And now we have some understanding of what gravel means to us and what tires work the best and what groupos work the best, what geometries work the best. And we want to be a part of that whole brand new bromanced area, if you will. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, because it's a quickly emerging and growing part of cycling and especially where you live there's so many really cool gravel roads like seeing all your pictures and videos and just the the little amount that i've been out to north carolina and that whole area i can definitely see why you guys ride gravel because it's it takes you to these really cool and remote places where it don't i feel you're in the forest and a lot of times like places i like where i live you don't really want to ride the gravel roads because there's like logging trucks and all this stuff. But if you're out where you are on these gravel roads, it almost feels like you're on single track in a remote place in the middle of nowhere. And that's a really cool feeling to have that feeling of, of freedom and that feeling of isolation that and the feeling that you went out there on your own and you made it out there without the use of a car. And it's a place where lots of cars don't go. Yeah. And, and I hope to get even more people now, Sonia, and this might be a little bit controversial, but with the advent of the e-bike, we had a guy that had a hip surgery and he got on the e-bike to recover. And I thought, man, this would be great to get people out in this area that really couldn't do it. Because 
in 50 miles, we've got you know, 5,000 feet of climbing or 60 miles, 6,000 feet of climbing. There's a lot of climbing. But you could get some people out that could actually see the colors of the leaves and feel the trees breathe on a bike, you know, and open up a whole new world of people out there. And these are the old moonshine roads. And so a lot of the barnstormers and a lot of the defeat marketing revolves around the, you know, the old NASCAR guys that used to use these roads to escape from the police. And so we have a lot of fun with that. One of the roads that we have is uh, Tom Dooley Road, which is a famous song called Tom Dula. It's about a guy who I think he killed his wife and then they went and hung him or something. Anyway. Lots of folklore. Yeah, and speaking of that, at Interbike, you guys launched your newest movie, which I was very, very impressed with the the filming and the editing and the music. And okay, like, tell us about the movie and tell us where people can watch it. Well, I did a new hire about uh, two years ago, a guy named Rob Dickerson, a guy I used to ride with all the time. And he's keen to the, the new fashion trends and, and senses. You know, he's 40-ish. But uh, Rob came in with this barnstormer idea, he showed me a film that Wes Anderson did. And Wes Anderson did a short film for Prada. And it's awesome. Seven minutes long. You never know it's a commercial. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. And so we used this film to inspire us to do our first film, which again was The Adventures of the Graveled High Ruler. It was filmed on some of the Hunger Games location. And uh, we had some really fun things in that one. But the, the movie you're talking about is The Bottle Runner. And the bottle runner is 10 years later, so it's 1965. We have a lot of really cool cars, automobiles in that in this one. And we filmed it in the Brown Mountain area. We have Greg LeMond guest starring. We have uh, Bobby Denton, a world-famous banjo player, uh, guest starring. And what we're able to do, Paul Willerton and, and myself, we have a hobby of film and music. So we're able to do this all ourselves. We film it. We produce it, we edit it, we use local musicians, or I write some of the songs, and we just make this thing homemade. And really, this one that we just did was 20 minutes long, and we, we're launching it next week in three segments of about, you know, no longer than 10 minutes and five minutes or whatnot. And we're going to run contests behind it. We're going to be giving away zip wheels. We're going to give away a SRAM one by. We're given a free night stay at the Beach Mountain Resort. We've got all kinds of fun things that we're going to be giving away, even a sea sucker rack. Because the car scenes, we use some sea sucker uh, mounts for our cameras, and they helped us with that. So anyway, the movie is a lot of fun, and we hope that a lot of people will watch it. Yeah, and it's funny because you say, oh, it's homemade, but it doesn't feel like a homemade movie. Like when I think homemade, I think of the spoofs that my friends and I made in high school, like for our French class, like this movie feels like a professional production. And not only that, but you guys are all acting in it too. And you make it look so easy, but acting is really hard. <laughs> and the fact that you guys can do all those things in addition to acting is really impressive. Well, the, I think the weakness is my part. You know, I wrote the script for it and Paul Willerton was able to take my scarbled script and actually write a story, create a story by doing a narration on top of what I had done. We're learning every time. And Sonia, the funny thing is we're all, you know, defeat folks. So it was like a bonding process. It was like <laughs> an incredible bonding process. And we're learning every time. And we keep saying this is the last one. So maybe this is the last one. I don't know, but we'll see. 
Yeah, especially but thank you for the, words. like the team building, because you're working as a team in a different way. And the patience it takes to do it and redo it. Like, I don't think people realize how much work goes into making a film, especially one that's 20 minutes long. And yeah, just like trusting all the people around you not to screw up so you don't have to be there forever redoing it. <laughs> well, one of the things I tried to capture in this film, I also have a, a song and it. The song is called Reaching for the Sky. And what I tried to capture is the feeling of a kid when you first get on a bike and the feeling of flying, right? You feel like you're flying. And then when you turn 16, if you're lucky enough to get a motorcycle or open car, you carry that freedom with you. And I found my freedom again when I started riding a bike again. So I, I did this whole thing. I did the bike. I did the convertible car. And then I got back on my bike. And I still feel that freedom. And when I'm going down a hill at 35 miles an hour, I feel like I'm flying. So Reaching for the Sky Again is the song that I wrote for this movie. And this movie is supposed to bring some of that into this whole – to make sense of what we're trying to do. And one of the funny side notes of the movie – is the Morgan, the white Morgan that's in the film, is a four, uh, it's a four-cylinder, four-plus, 1962 model. I drove that to the location in the piss-pouring rain with no windshield wipers. <laughs> and I had semi-trucks coming straight at me, and this car is wooden frame. And I did it at night. And I barely survived that drive to get this car <laughs> location. It's the scariest thing I've ever done, I think. And, uh, you know, there's no windows in the car. And so when you see that film, there's so many things that you don't see that was so hard to pull off. And we've got Barney Fife's cop car in the movie. You know, we had to haul that thing on a huge trailer. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. And yeah, you mentioned writing songs and music and that back in the, the 80s, you were doing music as well. So tell us a little bit about your like music's kind of your side hustle. Like you've opened for big bands, you've played it in Las Vegas, you've played it in all these different places. So tell us about your music. Well, I think, Sonia, I'm always the worst musician in the band. It, that's just my my stick. But I'm very fortunate. I've got incredible musicians that I can play with. So back in the 1980s, I was very fortunate to have a full-time job as a traveling musician, traveling bass player. Oh. And the band that I traveled in, you know, we traveled to the college circuit and had a blast. We had a recording studio. We had a lot of fun until I was about 26. I gave it up when I got married. But in 2004, I got back involved. I reunited the band and we started going at it again. And I think in 2008... The depression that had set in from the fire, I started getting songs just were coming out of me and I was just right. I probably wrote 50 songs. I really enjoyed doing that part. And this you mentioned, uh, yeah, we did play in Las Vegas. We played at the House of Blues. We opened up for George Thurgood. I'm going down to Austin next month and we're playing for the running show. But the musicians that I'm allowed to play with, they're either cyclists or runners. And I've got the Mike Ward. He was in the, the Wallflowers. I've got Mike Dimkich. He's in Bad Religion. Mike Malinan from the Goo Goo Dolls. And um, Joey, uh, was, I forgot Joey's last name. I've had too much coffee. But he was in Fastball. He was a drummer for Fastball. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. That's really and cool. And I play bass guitar and sing, so. That's so funny. And yeah, like speaking of musician cyclists, the bass guitarist, I think it was from Rage Against the Machine, is who got Reggie Miller into mountain biking. He 
his podcast came out this week and he was telling the story of how he got into cycling and it was from a musician cyclist. So that's really neat. Yeah, you know, I think uh, cycling for ADHD is really, it's like medicine. And so I think there's a lot of musicians that probably have that problem. And I bet that's one of the things. And a lot of these musicians talk, we did a series called Run, Ride, Play, Ride, Run, Play, I'm sorry. And uh, Tom Boone and a famous cyclist was in that. And we talked about what the musician or what the athlete had to give up to make it to the professional level. And in both cases, they all had to give things up. And then we asked Tom Boone and what he would think about, you know, like in the Paris-Roubaix. And he said, oh, there's always a song going through my head. And he said, sometimes it's a song I don't even like, but I can't get it out of my head. They call music the language of the world, right? We can all talk music. Yeah. Totally. I grew up playing music and I still love evolving and, and learning. And I also think that music is very similar to technical mountain biking, because if you're playing something on guitar or piano, or like those are the ones I've been working on or any instrument, when you're really focused on playing something that's challenging, your brain has to be a hundred percent present in that moment and what you're doing. Just like in a, on a mountain bike trail, whenever you have to navigate a technical section, like you can't think about something else because on music, you'll hear your mistake immediately. And I think that that's a really cool thing about it. And it's a way to rest your mind because our minds are so busy all the time thinking about this, that, and the other, and we're distracted all the time. And music is the one thing where your mind, if you're doing something really challenging, has to be 100% present in that moment. I completely agree. Awesome. So I want to ask a couple more questions to wrap this up. So number one, where did the name defeat come from? I should have asked this earlier, but I didn't, I should have started with that. Well, I went to a friend's wedding and had a couple of bottles of wine with my wife and we were driving back and I remember it clear as day. And, uh, I was thinking, you know, tour de pont, tour de France, tour defeat. And so I thought defeat would be a great name. And I came home and told my dad the name of my company. And he said, Oh, you're defeated before you get started. You know, he's being devil's advocate. I said, no, to win, you must defeat. So it stuck. Mm -hmm. And my second question is yellow. Like yellow is a theme in your office, in your home. You have these beautiful leather chair that's yellow. So why yellow? Well, I guess cycling has the color yellow attached to it because of the Marajan and the Tour de France. But uh, I picked yellow because yellow to me, I think Vincent van Gogh said, yellow is the color of hope. And yellow to me is obnoxious, it's loud, it's beautiful, it means caution, it, it's not blue and red. And so we picked yellow, but I have to admit, this is kind of embarrassing, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but when I met my wife, she had a Batavas bicycle from Holland, and it had a yellow saddle on it. <laughs> and you spent some time staring at that yellow saddle. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I've, I spend a lot of time staring at her yellow saddle. Yeah. And, and Hope is awesome. Like if you guys haven't met her before, she's a, a badass. Like she's very fit and she just doesn't take any crap. So I love Hope. She's cool. Well, thank you. I do too. She's the sanity. She's what kept, uh, like I said, she kept this company together. And, um, you know, we're so happy to have her in this company and in, in my life personally. And uh, she's been a superstar. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's a good point to just bring out is that 
it's really important to surround yourself with people who are going to build you up and support you, but also be there to tell you the truth and tell you how it is when maybe things aren't going the right way. So an honest and supportive team around you and everybody that's come on this show, that's been a really common theme is I wouldn't have been able to do this without the people that I've surrounded myself with. Yeah, Sonia, that's absolutely, you know, I completely agree with what hope provides this company and provides me personally, you know, there's no way I could have even taken the first step to own a business without her guidance. And she controls the madness. So <laughs> yeah, and I also want to thank you guys publicly, because we met in 2013. And it was a crazy story, because I was in North Carolina for work, and I was working for Ergon at the time, and I was supposed to do the Pisgah 111K. And I woke up that morning, it was the morning before I met you, and it was pouring rain outside, and it's the only time in my career ever where I, I just was like, nah, I'm not going, and I just went back to sleep. So I signed up to race the next day, which was like the 55K. And I had to move hotels because all this stuff happened. So I had to move to a different hotel. So long story short, I was in the parking lot of this hotel in Brevard at like five o'clock in the morning. And there was two other people out there. And it was you and Hope. And you came over and said hi to me. And it was just amazing. And you said, yeah, like I own Defeat. And you guys empowered me to build my personal brand and to take risks and take chances to do the things that I wanted to do, but I was afraid to. And I probably wouldn't have done them had I not met you guys in that parking lot. And also just the randomness of that happening and all the things that had to fall into place for that to happen are really unique. And I just wanted to, to say thank you for that. Well, thank you. And you don't, you would have made it no matter what. You have got such incredible gift in every area that you touch. And when I talk about Sonia Looney, I don't know what to say because she's so incredible across the board. And, you know, I love the fact that you have done so well because it proves that when Hope and I saw you, we did see the winner and you are the one that made that happen. You've taken every opportunity and, and turned it into opportunities for all those around you. So kudos to you, young lady. You have made it happen. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, that's again... Um, surrounding yourself with people who believe in you and people that say, yeah, like you should try this. And I do think that that makes a difference. I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners about entrepreneurship, recycling or music or, or anything like that? Thank you for asking. My parents had a wild pony with me, you know, when I was a kid and they let me chase my dreams. And I think chasing dreams at a young age is an incredible opportunity. So my mother and father, Alan and June Cooper, gave me that push. They didn't pressure on me to do anything other than chase my dreams. My God, I was a musician. Then I was a bike racer. And I started Defeat when I was 29. That's not the, tra the track that most people that can take, but I was able to take that. So my parents and then my wife's parents gave us incredible guidance as well as we started Defeat. So surrounding yourself with family and friends, like you said, and then, you know, as far as uh, employees, hire the best you can and, and let them help you make it. You know, that's, uh, I guess, the best thing I could say as far as entrepreneurship. Cool. Well, thanks so but much. Thanks for, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say thanks for giving me this opportunity to speak on your show. You've got some incredible guests and I'm flattered to be invited and, uh, Thank you for letting me be a part. 
Yeah, thanks so much. And in the show notes, guys, we're going to put links to all these different movies that Shane's done. And I'd like to get a link to that Tom Boonin um, thing that you were talking about as well. And check out the Defeat website. There's always new products coming out there. And now that it's the winter and the fall, my favorite, favorite product is the Thermiator sock, which is a synthetic sock. It's not wool, but it's less bulky than wool. And I wear those socks every single day. So definitely check those out. Well, thanks so much, Shane, and hopefully we'll get to see you again really soon. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye. That was such a fun conversation with Shane. I love that he said, go after your dreams. And as cliche as that might sound to some people, this is what I believe in as well. And I never would be where I am today if I hadn't had the courage and the support around me to do that. And there's always something that somebody wants to do, whether it be in sports, whether it be in music, whether it be in art or something completely different than what we've talked about. But it's so important to have vision and the drive and the courage to go after that thing that you believe in and that you want. And also knowing that it's going to evolve. Like Shane said, he started as a musician, he became a cyclist, and then he became an owner of one of the best sock companies in the entire world. So it's always really interesting to hear about people's path and that it starts with vision and the courage to go after that. I get to be home for about a month, which is a real treat because this year I've been traveling almost on a weekly basis. So I'm going to finally stay home and maybe do some organizing and plan my races and my writing and all my projects for next year as well. So there's lots of exciting things on the horizon and I can't wait to share them with you guys. Thank you so much for listening and sharing the show with your friends. Big thank you to those of you who are contributing to my show financially on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding website. So if you're really enjoying the show and you want to contribute to it, you want to help it get better, or you just want to help me cover the costs of audio production, please feel free to donate on Patreon. And for some of the tiers, you actually get some extra things in return. So thank you to those of you who are already doing it. And thanks in advance to those of you who decide that you want to contribute. Thank you so much to my audio producer, Roma. He is also a musician, as I've recently found out. So you guys should check him out. I'll put that in the show notes as well to some of his YouTubes. It's always fun to see the people that you work with and what they're up to. If you're interested in plant-based eating, you don't have to be 100% plant-based or be plant-based at all, but I have a Facebook page. It's a Facebook group called the Plant Power Tribe with over 600 members. And basically it's just a, a place, a community spot where we can share stories, share recipes, challenges, or just say hi. So everybody's welcome to join. I'll put that in the show notes as well, or just go to Facebook and search Plant Power Tribe. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. We'll see you on social media until next week and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. Bye. Bye.